his family. We instinctually know that it's flat wrong for brothers and sisters to become enemies at odds. How much more wrong for brothers and sisters in the family of God to become enemies and at odds. Yet it happens. And so what should we do? How should we deal with things when relational trouble arises? And of course, it will because of remaining sin and the devil's desire to wreck Jesus' church. So what do we do? Would you turn to Corinthians 6? 1 Corinthians 6. Boy, aren't you just starting to notice how practically helpful the book of 1 Corinthians is. Paul is applying the wisdom of the gospel to the issues that the church is facing. Last week, he brought forth the need for church discipline, given unrepentant sin. This week, he takes up the mantle of how they're dealing with their grievances. And let me tell you right up front, they are not dealing with them in a God-honoring way. So let's just read the first, let's just read the text, 1 Corinthians 6, verse 1. I don't think my mic is working, so if you want to hit the pulpit mic, I'm all for it. 1 Corinthians 6, 1. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more then matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So what's the problem at the outset? The problem at the outset is that Christians in the church are suing other Christians in the church. Look at verse 1. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? The words Paul uses highlights just how out of bounds this is. When one of you has a grievance against one another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous and not before saints. So I'm sure you've heard it said by by a parent or a teacher or a coach, right? Somebody has said this to you, don't you dare do that. 
When, when do we hear that? Well, we hear that when we're on the verge of doing something that is totally out of bounds, totally inappropriate. And that helps us see Paul's disdain for what's going on. They've got grievances with one another, and instead of settling it in the context of the church, they're actually taking their issues to a secular court. Now, what kind of issues does Paul have in mind here? In modern lingo, the kind of offenses in view are not criminal cases, so like murder, child abuse, rape. In general, criminal law is for punishing people who commit crimes that harm society. That's not in view here, and we know that because of how Paul uses terms to describe these offenses. They are grievances, verse 1, trivial cases, verse 2, disputes between brothers, verse 5. They involve cheating and defrauding, verse 7 and 8. So what's in view here, just to use modern language, is civil litigation. Civil litigation deals with smaller matters between individuals. It's for resolving private disputes and often disputes about money and possessions. So let me just put some flesh on this for us. If we were to have a situation where we discovered a man or a woman in the church abusing children, we would call law enforcement. That would not be a violation of this text. That would be the right thing to do. So this is never say, so this is not saying Christians, hey, Christian, never participate in the legal system, never seek redress through it, not what it's saying. It's forbidding believers in the church from suing other believers in the church. Imagine the mongers suing the Criscolos for money borrowed and never repaid. Imagine the Gagnons suing the Lundbergs for a borrowed vehicle wrecked that was never fixed. Imagine a carpenter in the congregation suing a member in the congregation and not paying him for his work. That's what this is getting at. And then imagine for a second coming to church on Sunday morning and worshiping with brothers and sisters that you are suing on Monday morning. That's grievous. Now, I'm not saying those issues don't need to be addressed. They do. It's grievous to think of a believer in church not paying a fellow believer for work on their house. It's grievous to think of money borrowed and never repaid. That that needs to be addressed, but not in the legal system. It needs to be addressed in the family. And Paul says why in 2 through 4. Throw your eyes back on 2. Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? Paul's essentially showing the Corinthians the ridiculous illogic of their actions. Verse 2 says, you are going to judge the world. Can't you judge trivial matters? I don't know if you've ever thought about what what does it mean that we're going to judge the world? Just listen to a few verses. Jesus said to his disciples, representative of the church in utero, 
Truly, I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Matthew nineteen twenty-eight. John, in Revelation 3.21, says, The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. John, in Revelation 20, verse 4, saw thrones in the last day, and seated on them were those to whom authority to judge was given. Likewise, Daniel 7 prophesies of a time when the saints possess the kingdom, and judgment is given to them. Truth is, there is some mysterious and grand sense that when Jesus returns, we alongside him are going to judge the world. When Jesus returns, brothers and sisters, we alongside him will rule and reign with him in a coming age. When Jesus returns, brothers and sisters, we alongside him will be his vice regents in a coming age. That is incredible. What does it actually look like? I can't tell you with specificity, but what I can tell you is if ruling and reigning is entrusted to us, how much more should we be able to manage disputes among ourselves? Amen? Paul reiterates his point in verse 3. Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? He says, you're going to judge angels. Now, in a sense, that's a little confusing. If, if you look at texts like Second Peter or Jude, then you know that it's God who judges angels. So I actually don't think this means that we literally judge angels. It means that the rule of the coming age has been given to us, not angels. We rule in the coming age over angels. As powerful and as mighty as angels are, the coming age has not been entrusted to them. It's been entrusted to us. And so just think about it. If rule over the coming age is entrusted to us, shouldn't we be able to resolve disputes about matters pertaining to this life? The answer to that would be yes. Both of these are greater to lesser arguments. They're, they're very clear cut, right? It's like... If you can bench 250 pounds, then you can bench 150 pounds. And everybody would be like, yeah, I copy. That's what Paul wants us to say as we see this. If we're going to rule and reign in the coming day, we can certainly take care of these matters. So, Paul says, if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? Why aren't you dealing with this in-house? Well, why are you taking it to be adjudicated by non-believers? And there's actually more to this than meets the eye. Those who have no standing in the church formally reads those who are disdained in the church. Translation. Believers disdain the worldly values of unbelievers. We do. Now, we don't disdain with animosity or hatred. We don't. But we rightly and truly and deeply reject fundamentally the values of the unbelieving world. 
Why then, believers, would we entrust our grievances with one another to be solved by those whose values and way of life we fundamentally reject? It makes no sense. And that, in fact, is Paul's point. And so then he just moves on to to plain old rebuke. I say this to your shame. Unlike chapter 4, verse 14, when he said, I don't write these things to make you ashamed. Here he says, I say this to your shame. You ought to be ashamed of yourself. I don't know if you've ever been corrected by somebody you respect and they said something like that to you. It's a humbling place to be, right? When you just know that you're you're wrong and they just kind of nailed you to the wall. And, and this is actually what the Corinthians need. They, they need this word. They need to be humbled because they are so dead, blurned, self-assured and oblivious as to how wrong their actions are. And they may not even see it at this point. And so Paul lays it on with another layer of thickness. He says, can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? For those of you who have a bent towards sarcasm, may I encourage you, this is sarcasm. The Corinthians thought so highly of themselves. They thought so highly of themselves that earlier when Paul contrasted them to himself and the other apostles, he said, we are fools for Christ, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. Now they weren't truly wise or strong. They thought they were, though. And so this is Paul trying to get their attention. You think you're so wise, but there's no one wise enough among you to settle disputes between yourselves. How wise can you be? Not very wise. You know, I just want to pause and I just want to note something. We need people in our lives that are willing to talk to us like this. Brothers and sisters, we need people in our lives who will be frank with us and will risk hurting our feelings in order to shed light on what we are oblivious to, but what is obvious to them. Amen? So that's the first rebuke. And then the second is in verses 7 and 8. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud, even your brothers. So here's a true statement. Nobody goes to court to lose. Okay? Nobody intentionally loses when they go to court. When someone goes to court, someone is going to court to win. And Paul says... Well, guys, whether you win or not is immaterial because, in fact, the fact that brother is going to brother with court, with one another in court, means you've already lost. He's pointing out to them the spiritual tragedy and defeat of this situation. That's what he's doing. This is a spiritual tragedy and a defeat. How is it a defeat? I'm glad you asked. It's a defeat because it lies to the world about the power of the gospel. Just as I have loved you, Jesus says, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. 
the defining mark of the people of God is love for one another. When unbelievers come to church, what should stick out to them more than anything else is a sense that people in this room really love one another. There is an otherworldly acceptance of one another. There is an otherworldly care for one another. There is an otherworldly forgiveness and restoration with one another. When unbelievers come to church, God intends for the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace to be a striking evidence to them of the reality and power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so let me just share with any of you here this morning who are outside of Christ. Friends, please hear me. To whatever degree this is true of our church... It is not because we are great people. I know the tendency is for you to think, man, what great people they have here. I've had people tell me that over and over, and I appreciate that. And I know what you're saying. I do. But the the thing is, it's not that we are great people. The thing is, it's because we have a great Savior in Jesus. Jesus has done for us what we could not do for ourselves. He has reconciled us to our maker and creator, God himself. Our sins had separated us from God and Jesus by dying in our place on the cross and rising again offers us forgiveness by faith in his name. And when we come to Jesus by faith, when we believe on his name and are forgiven of all of our sins, two things happen. Number one, we love God. We love him. How could we not love him? Not only did he make us, we owe our existence to him. Not only did he not wipe us off the map, even though we ignored him up until now. He's actually saved us. Our destiny is not hell, which we deserve. It's heaven. And so we love him. He is not some authoritarian killjoy who wants to govern our every move and strike us down when we transgress. He is a gracious heavenly father who has forgiven and reconciled us. So we love him. And number two, we love Christians. We don't just love God. We love those born of God. 1 John 5, 1, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. So it's like a big sister when she meets her baby brother, when mom and dad bring him home from the hospital. There's that instant connection and affection. If she's old enough, she takes him into her arms, and she snuggles him, and she kisses him, and she says, oh, it's my baby brother, my brother, my brother. Strange to say, but such a connection is, in fact, created by the power of the gospel for fellow Christians. We don't just love God, we love each other. And so please know, unbeliever in our midst, please know, to whatever degree you see this in our midst, it is because of Jesus Christ and the power of the gospel. We have not drummed this up It is evidence of a supernatural power 
and love at work within us. And let me also just say to my brothers and sisters, you can work against this power. Like siblings can turn on one another, you can turn on your brothers and sisters and and act in a way that isn't in keeping with the family name. That's, that's what's going on here at Corinth in a, in a heinous way. They are so sideways with each other that they are taking one another to court. But such sideways-ness doesn't start out big. It starts out small. It starts out with jealousy. I wish I was more like her. It starts out with hurt feelings over perceived actions or inactions. He walked right by me and didn't say hi. It starts out with not being honest one, with one another. Hey, I, I'm just wondering, is, is, is anything wrong? I'm noticing that we don't seem to be okay. Is anything wrong? And, and you say, oh, we're fine. It starts out with a vindictive spirit, lowercase v. Well, we won't be inviting him over. Brothers and sisters, to whatever degree you are allowing things like this, thoughts, actions, attitudes, to find residence in your heart, you are sowing seeds of spiritual defeat. You are sowing seeds that will spring up into a flower whose fragrance will be nasty and off-putting and joy-killing, and soul-withering, and it will be spreading lies about the power of the gospel to a world. You're acting like a Corinthian. So just back to the text. For personal disputes to end up in court is a defeat because it lies to the world about the power of the gospel. And you know why that's so bad? I mean, given, given that it's so bad, pardon me, given that it's so bad, do you know what would honestly be better? It'd be better to just be wronged and not seek justice for it. Look, look at the text, verse 7. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud, even your own brothers. Can I just level with you and say, this is hard to hear. It's hard to hear because our gut level response to any wrong or perceived wrong is justice. Our perceived gut level response to any wrong or perceived wrong is, this needs to be made right. And I do want to tell you, Scripture has a strong category for justice. It does. In fact, I would say it's the responsibility of the church in instances wherein a genuine wrong was done, believer to believer, to do its best to make sure that that wrong is righted. We did just cover church discipline last week. So this isn't advocating a anybody can get away with anything and you should just let it go mindset. But it is pressing in on us and making us uncomfortable and it intends to do so. What is it actually saying? Maybe it's best to let another couple of texts shed light. Romans twelve seventeen. just listen. 
Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome with evil, but overcome evil with good. Consider the words of Jesus in Matthew five thirty-eight. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Here's the deal. For us as sinners... In our personal dealings, and that is the realm where these texts are addressing. This is not addressing war or the role of the government as the sword of the Lord. This is addressing our personal dealings. For us as sinners, in our personal dealings, sometimes it is hard to see where the desire for justice ends and where the desire for payback begins. Somebody say amen or oh my, please. And in light of that, and in light of the damage to the cause of Christ's, of, to the cause of Christ, when Christians do something as heinous as go to court to settle a dispute with another Christian, Paul says it'd be better to just suffer the wrong. It'd be better to just be wronged. It'd be better to just be the one who takes the brunt. It's okay. And can I say to you, it is the power of the gospel alone that creates that ability. This attitude is not native to our sinful state. But in Christ, knowing that God sees all, knowing that God will make every wrong right in a coming day, knowing that any wrong suffered here will turn out for our ultimate spiritual good, oh, that is the only thing that will free us from vengeance-seeking and self-justification and free us to forbear and forgive when we are wronged. Do you ever see somebody who's just become, in a settled way, bitter or angry? That, friends, is where the Corinthians are headed if they keep this up. And we could be headed there too. It's frankly very easy to move in that direction, but better, far better to heed Paul's words and be defrauded and be wronged than to go there. So let's just do a little review. Paul has identified a major problem, believers suing believers, verse 1. He's explained why this is a problem, 2 through 4. He's rebuked them, 5 through 8. And now he transitions to a warning and a wonderful reminder. To anybody who's nervous that Paul's handling of this is going to create a chaotic environment in the church. Or an environment in the church where Christians will be emboldened to do what they ought not do in the church. That is a misunderstanding and that for two reasons. Number one. The church is called to practice church discipline. 
Sin is to be addressed. Sin is to be dealt with. The problem Paul has with the Corinthians is that they are taking their grievances up with the wrong court. Secular courts instead of the court of the church. Number two, pivoting off the last phrase in verse 8, Paul reminds Christians beginning in verse 9 why unrighteousness and ungodliness cannot characterize their lives. It cannot characterize their lives because they will not be in heaven if it does, no matter if they claim to be a Christian for their entire life. So I want you to look at 9 and 10. Would you throw your eyes back on that with me? Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Brothers and sisters, I just want to say to you in the plainest terms possible, that if your life is characterized by sin, you will not be in heaven. Now I want to make two clarifications to that statement. First, I did not say that if you struggle with sin, you will not be in heaven. All Christians struggle with sin. All Christians lose the battle with sin at times. I said, if you are characterized by sin, you will not be in heaven. So then we need to understand really what it means to be characterized by sin. Maybe a musical illustration will help. The melody in a song is the most dominant part of a song. When you remember a song, friends, you are remembering the melody. It's the dominant note that rings out through the song. Harmony in a song is an accent. It's not dominant. It's a, it's a subtle note alongside the dominant note of the melody. And if we were to think about this in relation to sin, if sin is the melody in your life instead of an unwanted and out-of-tune harmony, then sin characterizes your life. If sin is dominant and the norm in your life and just the way you are, that's being characterized by sin. That means you are not going to heaven. And let me also say this. This list is not exhaustive. So it's it's not as though if a sin is not listed here, then you need not worry about it. No. This list is is particular to the Corinthian church. This is what they had a tendency to struggle with. Yours may be different, but no less serious. So, So this is a warning. It's a warning to them. It's a warning to you of the seriousness with which you need to take the sin in your life. You cannot allow it to take territory in your soul at all. Now, I hope, honestly, you are sobered a bit and maybe even scared. That's what Paul intends. But he doesn't intend to weigh you down such that you're crushed. He intends to warn you such that you flee. And then he wants to give you a wonderful reminder in verse 11. 
pick up an 11. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of my God. Have you ever raised the blinds after a long night and you've just been so encouraged and warmed by the light of the sun? That's a bit of what's going on here. Don't be deceived, Paul says. The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. You were unrighteous. You couldn't make it through the day without kicking back a half a bottle of wine. Or going to the garage to kick back more brewskis than you want to tell your spouse. You couldn't help it but to steal from your employer or rip off your business associates. You were a liar. You lied to your parents. You lied to your pastor. You lied to your friends. You so idolized success that you blew off your family and your church and you wrecked relationships, but not anymore. Those things aren't you anymore. They may be an unwanted and off-putting harmony in your life every now and again, but they are not the melody. They're not you. And only for one reason. God saved you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. These are three metaphors for salvation. Washed, that doesn't refer to baptism, but by the washing and cleansing that takes place through faith in Jesus Christ. When we place our trust in Christ, we are washed clean from our sin by the power of the Holy Spirit. Sanctified. Sanctified here is not the process of lifelong growth. It's the status we have as holy, set apart for God, which is true of us through faith in Jesus Christ. Paul tells the Corinthian church, and by nature all of Christians, in chapter 1, you are sanctified in Christ Jesus. When we place our trust in Christ, we are sanctified. We are washed, we are sanctified, and we are justified. When we place our trust in Jesus Christ, we are counted righteous. We are reckoned righteous. Christ takes all our sin upon himself. Our sin is reckoned to his account. And Christ gives us his righteous standing with the Father. His righteousness is reckoned to our account. We are justified. Washed. Sanctified. Justified. All of this happens when you place your trust in Jesus Christ. Washed. Sanctified. Justified. And it's all a work of our triune God. Did you notice all three persons of the Spirit, all three persons of the Trinity are here in this text. These things take place in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Oh, brothers and sisters, the reality is no one can be washed and sanctified and justified and live lives that look no different from the world. It's not possible. It doesn't happen. That's why the Corinthians can't act like this. That's why we can't act like this. 
Because it's not who we are. It's who we were, but it's not who we are. We've been saved, and that means we are different. And so just a word in conclusion. First of all, to non-Christians, the word to you is that you can be saved from your sin this morning. Washed, sanctified, justified through faith in Jesus Christ alone. Sin is a powerful melody in your life. You think that you are free, but you are not free. You are in chains. And the song that your life is singing says, enslaved, enslaved, and on the way the grave but Jesus is the one who can free you Jesus is the one who can break the chains of your sin my encouragement to you this morning is to come to Jesus for freedom come to Jesus for forgiveness come to Jesus to be cleaned and washed and purified and make new come to Jesus to exchange the pain and torment of hell for the glory and joy of heaven Come to Jesus and live. You can have life by trusting in Jesus today. And then just a word to my brothers and sisters in Christ. Let us live in keeping with who we are. The gospel calls us to righteous conduct. Brothers and sisters, ask yourself, ask your spouse, ask your close friend who you know will be bold and honest with you, is righteousness increasingly characterizing my life? Or do you see things that concern you? And if you do, would you tell me? And I promise I won't get sideways with you. Is righteousness increasingly characterizing your life? It needs to be because you are righteous. You are righteous in Christ. So righteousness needs to continue to increasingly characterize your life. The gospel calls us to righteous conduct. The gospel calls us to love one another. So ask yourself just honestly, do I view the call to love the members of this church as the next highest calling in my life below loving the Lord Jesus Christ? Does love for the members of the body of Christ characterize my life or does my life look more like I'm just kind of doing my own thing? The gospel calls us to love one another. Ask yourself, am I increasingly loving my brothers and my sisters in Christ? And then the gospel calls us to be serious about preserving the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. So in your relationships, specifically your relationships at church, I just want to ask you, are you seeking peace? Are you humbly confessing sin? Are you grateful when a brother or sister points out sin? Are you 
covering over minor offenses. Do you know what we need more and more of in the body of Christ? We need shock absorbers in the body of Christ. Shock absorbers lessen the action of a car that makes things feel jostly, okay? In the body of Christ, we're going to do things that are dumb and hurtful at times. We want to be shock absorbers that just kind of lessen that, the impact of that on the whole body, that, that cover over minor offenses. We want to be shock absorbers. We, we want to be folks who are not going around blowing on hot embers of brewing conflict, but instead we want to be going around with water, dumping it onto the coals of conflict. Are you covering over minor offenses? If you need help with others, will you commit to asking to help for help from me or from another one of our elders? Our relationships here are of vital importance because they testify to the power of the gospel to the outside world and because they testify to our own hearts that we are, in fact, his. And so may we not wrong one another, but may we love one another for the glory of God, for the good of the church, for our eternal well-being. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We ask that it have its good effect in us. We ask that you make it both sing and sting. We ask that the things which you describe would become more and more true of us, not because we have it all together, but because we've been saved by the blood of the Lamb. We've been washed, sanctified, and justified. So may these things be increasingly true of us. In Jesus' name, amen.